This morning, as we begin this last section in Romans, in the Apostle Paul's great letter to the church at Rome, in the first section, which was chapters 1 through 11, Paul expounded the great doctrines of the Christian faith, justification, salvation, sanctification, redemption. Then beginning at chapter 12 and ending at chapter 15, verse 13, as we looked at three weeks ago, Paul exhorted the believers to live out those truths from God's word by the power of the Holy Spirit who is in them. So as we come to verse 14 of Romans chapter 15, the great exposition and the great exhortation are over. And now the Apostle Paul concludes the book of Romans, his letter to the the church at Rome, by sharing his heart for ministry. His heart for ministry. His heart for his own ministry and his heart for the ministry of the Christians who lived in Rome. And we see in this conclusion of Paul's letter as we begin to finish this out, we see a basic principle for effective ministry and why Paul was so passionate and committed to serving Christ and was so passionate about the ministry and the service of Christ of the church in Rome who lived in the heart of the Roman Empire. And it's a basic principle that undergirds and empowers Paul's calling and his ministry to the Gentiles. It's a basic principle that facilitates the ministry of the believers in the church at Rome, as well as our ministry as Grace Baptist Church, and your own specific ministry and your own calling of God as well. And the basic principle that undergirds and empowers Paul's calling and ministry as well as yours and mine, that we see Paul writing to Rome here, is this. Every church, whether it be the church in Rome, or in Corinth, or in Boise, or in Emmett, or New Plymouth, wherever that church is located, has been strategically placed and empowered by God through his Holy Spirit to minister to serve, minister and serve, in a particular place, in a particular time, in a particular way, in a particular culture, in a particular circumstance, for the glory of God. In other words, the same way that Paul, or that God used the church in Rome to fulfill his purposes in Rome, God wants to fulfill his purposes through Grace Baptist Church in Emmett, Idaho, and through the rest of the world, through our influence. God wants to fulfill his purposes here for his glory through each one of us as we serve and minister and serve Christ in his church. So not only we are called of God as Grace Baptist Church to fulfill our corporate ministry as a church, which is going to be different than Calvary Chapel or the Nazarene Church or First Baptist because of who we are, because of how he has gifted us individually and as as a church. And God has called each one of you as individual believers to fulfill the ministry that God has given to you in this time and place. You might be familiar with what Paul exhorted Timothy in this regard, but how many of you know who Archippus is? Who? Yeah, I thought that would be. Some of you might get an idea. Now, Paul wrote to Timothy. You might remember this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. But you, he said to Timothy, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, Timothy. 
Fulfill your ministry. And you can read Paul's letters, to both letters to Timothy. And if you read those letters, you have a very clear idea of the ministry that Timothy was to fulfill. But Paul also exhorted a man by the name of Archippus to fulfill his ministry. And we really have no idea who he was, except he was a member of the church at Colossae. And that Paul called him a fellow soldier of Jesus Christ. Now imagine... You're in the church at Colossae, and you've been told by the elders that you have a letter. they have a letter from the Apostle Paul. And we're going to gather on a Sunday morning on the Lord's Day, and what they're going to do that day is read the letter from the Apostle Paul. And so people would have been sitting in families and groups and sitting there probably on the floor, anxiously waiting to see what, hear, and see and hear what Paul has to say to them. And then it comes to Colossians 4.17. Archippus would have been sitting there. And Paul writes, say to Archippus. Think that would get your attention? (laughs) Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received from the Lord that you may fulfill it. Archippus, you've received a ministry from the Lord. Now take heed that you may fulfill it. And my goal is over the next few weeks as we finish up our study of the book of Romans, that we as Grace Baptist Church would take heed to the ministry that we have received from the Lord, that we may fulfill it. And that each one of you, in keeping with your own spiritual gifts and your own calling of God and the grace that God has given to you, would take heed to your ministry, which you have received from the Lord, that you may fulfill it. And since all of us who have been trusted have trusted in Christ, will one day give an account to God for how well we served him and how well we used the gifts he gave to us. We need to know some biblical principles for how to carry out our ministries, right? And that's exactly what Paul gives us, and that's what he does in verse 14 of Romans chapter 15. Paul gives us some biblical principles on how we can carry out our own ministries. These are principles for effective ministry. And you might think, well, this message, I don't know if it really applies to me because I'm not in the ministry. If you thought that, you may not understand the New Testament truth. That as a Christian, God has given you spiritual gifts that you are to use in serving, ministering for him. And there are no useless, there are no inactive parts in the body of Christ. And every believer is a priest with a ministry to fulfill. Or you might think you're not in the ministry because you're not financially supported in the ministry. You work in a secular job. So did Paul. He made tents to support his ministry. All of us are just as much in ministry as the Apostle Paul was. And so in verse 14 of Romans chapter 15, we see here three marks of a healthy ministry. And we can also say these are three marks of a healthy minister or servant of God, a healthy and effective servant of God who is filled with the Holy Spirit and gifted by the Spirit and empowered by the Spirit of God. So Paul begins the conclusion of his letters by writing in verse 14, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish or to instruct one another. These are the three marks of a healthy minister and a healthy, healthy ministry. Morally, we'll say the healthy minister is full of goodness. Full of goodness. Intellectually, the healthy minister is competent in knowledge or complete in knowledge. 
And functionally, the healthy minister is competent to counsel, that is, to instruct in God's word. So first of all, morally, the healthy minister or servant of God is full of goodness. Full of goodness. Paul wrote to the believers concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness. Now, goodness here refers to their high moral character and living. But it's much more than somebody just considered to be a good person or that they're a good person. It's, it's a certain kind of goodness that is translated into certain actions and attitudes. In fact, it could probably be translated here kindness because it has to be an action. It has to be an attitude. We read from uh, Micah chapter uh, 6, verse 8 this morning. So turn back to Micah chapter 6, verse 8. The sixth chapter of Micah, you go, okay, where's Micah? It's toward the end of your Old Testament. Uh, It's in the section called the Minor Prophets. It's right after Jonah, if that helps. Right before Nahum, (laughs) if that helps. Micah 6, 8, because in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, we find a vivid description of what goodness is, what it looks like, and what it does. And then the prophet Micah prophesied during the reign of three consecutive kings, the last king being King Hezekiah. And it was a time when the cities of Judah and Israel were known for their wickedness. These are wicked cities. And Micah saw the greed in the hearts of the leaders of the kingdom. And with this, there was also constant raids and constant conflict with the the Assyrians that uh, they had to fight against. These were days of unrest. They were days of insecurity. They were days of hardship. Sound familiar? especially for the peasants and villagers who were subjugated and harassed and enslaved even by the passing armies. And in both Israel and Judah, the rulers and the wealthy and the conniving priests that went along with these guys, they aligned themselves with the rulers and the wealthy, and they all felt secure in their lifestyles and their strong fortifications, and they oppressed the poor and everybody else who wasn't them, literally everybody else. And so Micah, at the risk of his own life, fearlessly following the leading of the Holy Spirit, faithfully preached the word of God. Now the priest and the rulers and the wealthy thought they were doing good by bringing their sacrifices to the Lord, doing their religious thing, And they they mistakenly thought they were good and they were good with God because they continued their religious practices. But Micah forcefully refutes the idea and tells these guys what true goodness is. Verse 6 of Micah chapter 6, or verse 8 of Micah chapter 6, this is goodness. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So first of all, when Paul was saying that the the believers at Rome were full of goodness, here we see that to be full of goodness means to do justice and to love kindness. To do justice and to love kindness. Now my guess is if you look at your news apps or you watch the news in the last week, you've heard the word justice used over and over and over again. 
racial justice, social justice. It usually has a word before it, but it's justice, justice, justice. And, and people are protesting and, and picketing for, for justice. But how many times have you heard the word kindness or mercy in the last week on any of this? Now, at first glance, doing justice and loving mercy seem to be at opposite ends, don't they? You know, because we think of mercy as what? Not getting what you deserve. And that's part of it because justice demands that you be punished for a crime, for a sin. Mercy says, no, we're, we're not going to do that to you. You know, and that's a very narrow view that we can get caught up into. Now, let's first of all look at the word for mercy or kindness. The Hebrew word is hesed. We've talked about this word before. It's one of the great words in Hebrew. One of the great words in the Old Testament. It's right up there with agape love. In fact, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures from the second century B.C., oftentimes when they came to that Hebrew word chesed, they translated it agape. And that makes all kinds of sense. Chesed refers to God's unconditional grace, his compassion. It can be translated in the Old Testament, loyal love, unconditional love. Oh, love that will not let me go. That's Hesed. As you know or may know, it's, it's one of the main themes in the book of Ruth. Remember Ruth and Naomi? They're both widowed. They're both left destitute. And they have to go and be foreigners in, in, in uh, Judah. You know, they, they were immigrants. They, they were destitute. And the widowed Ruth, the Bible says, showed chesed to, to Naomi. Mercy, kindness, loyal love, unconditional love to her destitute and widowed mother-in-law, Naomi. Naomi stuck, or Ruth stuck with Naomi and lovingly served her through the worst of times. And then Boaz comes on the scene. Remember Boaz? And he showed Hesed to Ruth. Because he said one of the reasons he showed Hesed to her is because everybody in town knew Ruth Hesed to, to Naomi. And all the while in the book of Ruth, the loving kindness, the Hesed, the agape of God dominates the book of Ruth. God's kindness, his unconditional grace and mercy, his compassion in both Ruth and Naomi, or to both Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. This is the hesed that is expressed in true goodness. Those who are full of goodness, like the Christians in Rome, are people who are full of mercy, love, and compassion. And I've often said agape is an action verb, right? You know, you can't say to your wife when she asks you in the morning, do you love me? You know, and the husband looks over his newspaper. Of course I love you, sweetheart. Puts his newspaper <laughs> back up. That's not it. Hesed is always shown and demonstrated. It's an action word of kindness, of mercy, of, of love, compassion. But to be full of goodness also means to do justice. To do justice. justice. The word for justice is the Hebrew term mishpat. Mishpat. And in Micah 6.8, Mishpat, justice, puts the emphasis on the action, and Hesed puts on the attitude or the motive behind the action. You can't separate them, but really the action of justice here comes from 
the motivation of loving kindness. And so to walk with God, to walk with God, then we must do justice out of merciful love. Do justice out of merciful love. Now the word mishpat, justice, in its various forms occurs more than 200 times in the Hebrew New Testament. And it's its most basic meaning is to treat people equitably, to treat people as equals. We have that in our Declaration of Independence. So Leviticus 24, verse 22, warns Israel to have the same mishpat, justice, for the foreigner as for the native. The same justice. And on one sense, mishpat means acquitting or punishing every person on the merits of the case regardless of race or social status or anything else. You do the crime, you pay the fine, right? Or whatever, whatever it is. Injustice in this sense that it doesn't matter who a person is, doesn't matter where they came from, doesn't matter what race they are, doesn't matter their home situation, whatever it is, that doesn't matter because the crime, if it has been committed, is either acquitted or punished on the merits of the case, regardless of race or social status. Anyone who does the same wrong should be given the same, the same penalty. But mishpat means more than just the punishment of wrongdoing. Justice means more than just the punishment of wrongdoing. That is why if you look at every place the word is used in the Old Testament, several classes of persons continually come up. Over and over again, justice or mishpat describes taking up the care and the cause of widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. Those who are disenfranchised, those who are neglected, those who are hurting in society. And these have been called the quartet of the vulnerable. The quartet of the vulnerable. So mishpat justice means taking up the care and the cause of the vulnerable people in our society, in our church. We lovingly and mercifully take care for them and tend for their needs, as well as taking up their cause. That is what it means to do justice. This is what we see in in Zechariah chapter 7. You don't need to turn to it. In verses 9 through 10. Thus has the Lord of hosts said, Dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother. And then he turns to others, and do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, that is the immigrant, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. To do justice means not only caring for these people, but to take up their cause. So what does this have to do with the Christians in Rome who are full of goodness? Well, many in the church in Rome, many of the Christians were immigrants. They were Jews, many of them by birth and by race. And they were a group who was persecuted. They'd been kicked out of Rome. You know, remember we talked about this before. The gospel uh, began in Rome at Pentecost. There were people from Rome and from all over the world who were at Pentecost and they were saved. They were part of that 3,000. They went back to Rome or wherever they're from. And so it was uh, Romans believers who were at uh, Pentecost who brought the gospel to Rome and the church began to grow and then Gentiles were saved through their ministry 
And then Claudius, the emperor, kicked the Jews out. <laughs> and so all the Jews had to leave, whether they were Christian Jews or whatever Jews they were. And uh, so by the time Paul wrote the, the letter to the Romans, the Jews were able to return uh, to Rome. And so it was a Jewish church, and it was a fully Gentile church, and now it's a Gentile dominated with Jews in it at church. And so these were, these were what we would call immigrants, foreigners, sojourners. And, uh, and over half the people of the Roman Empire were slaves, most of them enslaved because they were conquered people, and they were taken into slavery. And so half the people in the whole empire were slaves. In Rome itself, the number of slaves was probably two-thirds of the population. In Rome, all oppressed and subjugated and harassed by the elite that we've been talking about, whether it's uh, the religious elite or the political elite or whoever, the wealthy, wh whoever it is. So at least half of the church in Rome, maybe more, were, were slaves. Then you had the poor and the oppressed and you had the widows and the orphans and, and the others. The majority of the people who lived in Rome, the majority of the citizens were poor and oppressed. The elite and the rich dominated the culture. And then there were the widows and the orphan. And Paul is saying in a very clear way here, the Christians in Rome knew how to do justice because they loved kindness. That is what good people do. They ministered to one another, and especially they ministered to the quartet of the vulnerable. And what else is marked by goodness? Paul says good people, or Micah says, good people walk humbly with God. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. What does that mean to walk humbly with God? The Hebrew word for humility or humbly suggests modesty. Not modesty how we usually define it today, but uh, as one of God's followers, you are to walk modestly or meekly or humbly with him. Humility or walking humbly is best understood by what it's not. I think a lot of times we can see what it's not, and then we can understand better what it is. We are to not walk proudly or arrogantly. We are not to exalt ourselves above others, and we have many times in the book of Romans where we're exhorted not to do that. We are not to treat other people as though they are of less worth than we are. In fact, to walk humbly means to have a humble estimate of your own abilities and importance. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, Paul wrote to the church at Rome. To be humble or to walk humbly means to be free from vanity, egotism, boastfulness, pretension, it means to trust the Lord and acknowledge him as the source of all of life, not just part of life, all of life, as you walk through each day to depend upon him, to constantly seek his mercy, to constantly seek his forgiveness. If you're walking humbly with God, you will not be proud or self-reliant, depending only on your own strength. Rather, you'll continually seek the strength of the Lord, calling on him to help you, to guide you, to deliver you from temptation. Walking humbly with God means that you will not seek honor for your own name, but you'll seek it for God's name. All of this because you know that it is God who has gifted you, who has graced you, the gifts of grace, the spiritual gifts. 
And it is God through his Holy Spirit that enables you to use those spiritual gifts. He has filled you with his Holy Spirit. And your effectiveness in ministry and service and everything you do depends completely on God. Completely. Therefore, you want the honor and the glory to go to him. It's not me. It's, it's him. That's what it means to walk humbly with God. So morally, the healthy minister is full of goodness. And secondly, we see in Romans chapter 15, verse 14, intellectually, the healthy minister is complete in knowledge. Let me just read it again at verse 14. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself am also convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, filled with all knowledge. Paul commended the Romans for being filled with all knowledge, and he was convinced that they were full of goodness and filled with all knowledge. Now, we wonder about that because we've read the book of Romans and studied up to this point. We know these aren't perfect people. These are, you, know, who's he, you might wonder, who? Who's he talking about here? And Paul is not using flattery here. You know, I read some of the commentators because... They're saying that Paul wanted Rome to be the basis and the foundation and the takeoff place so he could go to Spain and minister. In other words, they're thinking that Paul was thinking that without the Romans, he would not have that base of operations for missions. You know, Paul's not doing any of that. He's not buttering them up. He's not using flattery so they will support him in his ministry to Spain. But he is assuming that the Roman believers were relatively mature both in their knowledge of the Christian truth and in their practice of that truth. You see, knowledge here refers to knowing biblical truth. When Paul says that the Roman believers are full of goodness and all knowledge, he does not mean that they were sinless in their behavior and qualified to teach at the seminary level and their knowledge of biblical truth and those kind of things. If that so was so, he wouldn't have needed to write all the doctrinal and practical sections of the book of Romans. Rather, he's assuming the best about the church as a whole. They are overall marked by hesed, agape love, love, mercy, and compassion, doing justice, walking humbly with God, and they have a grasp of basic biblical truth. You don't have to have arrived at spiritual perfection for God to use you in ministering to others, right? But you do have to be obedient to God's word. And you need to have a basic understanding of biblical truth. And these two qualities go together. There are morally good people who have no understanding of biblical truth. And so they cannot effectively minister to others. And there are people who know impressive amounts of biblical truth, but they don't apply it to themselves personally. They are not marked by godly conduct or unselfishness or loving behavior. They are not merciful people. Sometimes the least merciful people you meet are the people who know more about the Bible than anybody else. It's, it's a sad commentary, but it's really true. And so they're not able to minister effectively either. But if you know God's truth and you're applying it to your life personally, then you're able to admonish or to instruct others. Your life backs up the message and both are grounded in God's word. So thirdly, we come to just that, to then being able to instruct others. Functionally, the healthy minister is competent to counsel or to instruct in God's word. 
And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish or instruct one another. The word admonish there literally means to instruct. It comes from two Greek words. The, the, the word here is nuthateo. Nuthateo. I think I might even put this one in the outline this time. It comes from two words, nous, which means the mind. Nous is the mind. Antithemy, which means to place or set in the mind. So nuthateo is to place or set it in the mind. So it means to instruct someone, to set it or to set it or place it in someone's mind as if you're instructing them. In other words, exhorting in God's word in a way that is encouraging, or it could be a word of warning, it could be a word of advising from God's word. It's a comprehensive term, really, for biblical counseling. In fact, Jay Adams, several years ago, used the word nuthateo and wrote a comprehensive book on biblical counseling called Nuthetic Counseling. Maybe some of you have heard of that, Nuthetic Counseling. It is coming alongside another Christian for spiritual and moral counseling from God's word. And so Paul is not referring here to a, a special gift of counseling, but he is saying that it is the responsibility and duty of every believer for encouraging and strengthening other believers in using God's word. But it does imply that there's a problem someplace. It could be immaturity. Or it could be a sin that somebody's caught up in the life of another person that, that needs to be overcome. It could be a doctrinal correction. There, there's all kinds of things, but it assumes that there is a problem. In fact, several times Paul uses the word nuthateo to describe his own ministry. We won't need to turn to these, but he told the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 31, he said to them, Therefore be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish or instruct, nuthateo, each one of you with tears. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, he wrote, We proclaim him, admonishing, nuthateo, every man, and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we might present every man complete in Christ. Can you see, one has to do with a sin, another has to do with just their spiritual maturity, their sanctification. He wrote to the Thessalonian church in the 14th verse of the 5th chapter of the first letter, We urge you, brethren, this time he's appealing to all Christians, admonish, nuthateo, the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. All the believers in Rome and all of us as believers are to exercise the ministry of admonishing and exhorting fellow believers especially those who are unruly and out of step, and then encouraging the faint-hearted, helping the weak, being patient. And so in our text of Romans, Paul is confident that the Roman believers are capable of exercising this ministry toward one another. And one of the reasons that he was confident of this, and not the only reason, but, but a, a, a main reason, was that Paul knew some of these believers in Rome. When we get to chapter 16 and find out all the people greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so, and he talks about who they are. So I want us to turn to one of those because we see a good example of Paul's confidence in Romans chapter 16, verse 3. In the 16th chapter, Paul is extending his greetings to those whom he knows personally in Rome. And in verse 3, we see a couple named Prisca and Aquila. We know them in the book of Acts as Priscilla and Aquila. 
And so he puts in his letter in verse 3, Great Prisca, or Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own neck, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also the churches of the Gentiles. So we know that Paul has a history with these people of ministry, and even they risked their own lives at one point to save the Apostle Paul. So let's look at some of that, because this is, this is really cool how this works. You're going to see something in here that maybe you never saw before. Go to Acts chapter 18, the first verse. Acts chapter 18, where we first come across and find this couple by the name of Priscilla and Aquila. We know that uh, they were Jewish Christians who had been kicked out of Rome, uh, who were persecuted, along with all the other Jews. And they went to Corinth and settled in Corinth. And that's where Paul finds them for the first time. We pick it up in verse 1 of Acts chapter 18. It says, after these things, Paul left Athens. You know, Athens, Paul had been at Mars Hill at the Areopagus, and he proclaimed the word of the Lord before what we call the egghead, the intellectual Greek scholars that didn't get anything. <laughs> but, yeah, but anyway, you know, so he comes, and I think he's probably on a little bit of downer. I mean, God did work in, in that, you know. And some of them said, we, we must hear you again in Athens. But it, you know, I, I think Paul was feeling like, boy, there really wasn't much fruit. I, I know I planted some seeds. And that was his primary ministry anyway. So he left Athens and he went to Corinth. And it says in verse 2, He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them. And because he was the same trade, that is, they were tent makers, he stayed where they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. Paul first went to Corinth, and he, when he first went to Corinth, he connected with this marvelous couple. They worked alongside as tent makers, not only making tents, but they worked alongside for these 18 months, ministering together to the church at Corinth, bringing people to Jesus Christ, discipling them, helping them to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they worked together as tent makers, and they worked together in establishing and teaching the church in Corinth. In a word, Paul discipled Priscilla and Aquila during those 18 months. Paul came alongside them and discipled them in God's word. And Then when Paul decided it was time to leave Corinth, he took Priscilla and Aquila with him initially, but then he left Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus, and he went on with his missionary tour. I don't think Priscilla and Aquila, I don't think they were the missionary types, but uh, he, he left there. We don't know why he left them there, but we pick it up in verse 24 of Acts chapter 18. In the 24th verse, Priscilla and Aquila had been there for a little while, and then it says, verse 24, And now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus. That's where Priscilla and Aquila are now. And he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. Now, Apollos had been a disciple of John the Baptist. He had been obediently 
baptized into repentance by John. And he taught about Jesus, but his teaching was accurate concerning Jesus, but there were some severe deficiencies in Apollos' teaching when it came to baptism and what Christian baptism means and, and, and all of that. And it says in verse 26, And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Here's what they did. They admonished him. They instructed him in the Lord. Priscilla and Aquila recognized some deficiencies in, in Apollos' understanding of baptism. They did not correct him in public. There was no scorn. There was no criticism. There was no criticizing him on Facebook or anything else like people just love to do today. There was no tearing him down. They did not embarrass him by correcting him in public. They took him aside and their nuthetic ministry was life-giving. Using the word of God, simple, ordinary tent makers built the life of Christ into this great preacher. Isn't that great? And here's the cool thing, and this is so neat. Apollos left Ephesus and went back to Corinth, where Priscilla and Aquila and Paul administered for 18 months. I'm sure when Paul leaves, he's always wondering, who's going to continue to disciple these folks? You know, how are they going to do? That's why we have all the, all the books Paul wrote in the New Testament is because once he left, man, these people got messed up. I think he had to worry about that about every church, except the church of Thessalonica. He was worried that they were messed up. And when Titus went, he found out they're not messed up. <laughs> and so it's a wonderful thing. But, but Paul leaves, and he always had that burden for who's going to continue to disciple these people in Corinth. Apollos left Ephesus, having been discipled by Priscilla and Aquila, and went to Corinth to fulfill that ministry. Verse 27, and Apollos wanted to go across to Achaia, that is, and Corinth is a city in Achaia, and when he did, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. Priscilla and Aquila and others say, hey, you got to hear this guy, this is a great man, what a man of God that's coming to your town. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrated by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Apollos discipled the believers in Corinth, greatly helping them. And what was the result? You don't need to turn to it, but we have the result. Later to the church at Corinth, Paul would write, What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers you are God's field, God's building. And in between the lines, between Paul who planted in Corinth and Paulus who watered in Corinth, 
There's an ordinary tent-making couple, this tent-making Christian couple, who are now back in Rome, who, like the other believers in Rome, were full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish fellow believers. Well, everybody, that's just the way it's supposed to work. That is the way that God has chosen for it to work. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, oh, how we love your word. Father, it is so tremendous as we read about people like Priscilla and Aquila and Paul and Apollos. All of them really just ordinary people, Father. People who have you put your hand of grace and mercy upon them that they might extend that grace and mercy to others. Father, I thank you that you have made us part of this story. The gospel story, the gospel message of what you are doing in our hearts and in our lives and what you want to do in our church and in our community and in our world. Father, may we be like Priscilla and Aquila, walking humbly with you, filled with all goodness and all knowledge, doing justice and loving kindness. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.